Welcome to Chaos to Clarity. On this episode, Eric talks with Ravi Parikh, CEO and co-founder of Airplay, about the challenges of managing customer feedback, using analytics to improve a platform's functionality, and approaching tough decisions as a leader when product development moves quickly. Enjoy the show. Hey, Ravi, how you doing, man? Thanks for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Eric. Yeah, I'm looking forward to meeting you or uh, to, to chatting with you today. A lot about product analytics, but we'll get into some other things. It's definitely an area that's I love to geek out about, so it'll be a good time. Before we get into it, I want to get to know you a little bit. So kind of tell me where you, where you came from and what got you into this startup game. Yeah, absolutely. I'm currently co-founding a company called Airplane. Before that, I was a co-founder of a company called Heap. And so I've been working on startups for about a little over 10 years now uh, at this point. Uh, and so I started my first company, Heap, in 2013. But prior to that, I was a musician for a couple of years. And prior to that, I was in college. So that's kind of my entire background. And, and the way I kind of got into starting Heap was a, a little bit random. A couple of years out of college, I was, I was making music. I was doing that. Uh, and a friend of mine from from college who I studied computer science with together in, uh, in school hit me up and said, hey, I'm working on this idea for this analytics product called Heap. Um, you should work on it with me. Uh, him and I were good friends. We'd worked on several projects together and things like that in the past, but obviously nothing of that scale. Uh, and I said, yeah, it sounded cool. And and I had a lot of free time. So um, I <laughs> him and um, yeah, it, it sort of took off a little bit after that. We ended up doing Y Combinator and raising a little bit of money and then, you know, launching a product and getting initial users and, and, and then a whole thing. And so that sort of, I, in, in some ways, stumbled into the path a, a lot more so than I think some people do. Yeah. Awesome. I actually worked with with Heap for a little bit, so we can talk about that a little bit more. But um, I'm interested. Let's talk about music for a little bit. So you sure. were you're going to school for computer science. How yeah. did you get into music, and how did you why did you decide to make that your profession? Yeah, I mean, honestly, a little bit randomly as well. I uh, made music my whole life, basically as a as a hobby. Uh, and then uh, in college, I, I used to make electronic music for fun. I put a lot of it online on SoundCloud, YouTube, that kind of stuff. And then so around 2010, 2011. Uh, a lot of my songs started getting uh, a little bit popular on the internet, just sort of accidentally. And then so around the time I was graduating college, I started getting offers to play shows and and do things like that. And so I, I kind of kept doing that for a couple of years, but it wasn't necessarily what I was trying to set out to do necessarily. <laughs> Did you ever think that was going to become your career? No. I mean, even when I was doing it, it didn't really feel like something I was going to do long term. It felt like um, something that was a lot of fun to do. And it was really cool that I was getting paid to do something I loved. But um yeah. It wasn't something I necessarily wanted to do long term. So electronics. So you were DJing. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I was a DJ actually for about five years. Oh, cool. Starting in, I think like 1999. Wow. Started DJing drum and bass. Used to be called Jungle back in the day. Yeah. And uh, all the way through college, and then after college as well. And so I was in Miami, um, and got to a point we got pretty big. I mean, we certainly ran the circuit all over Florida. It was where I grew up. Um, but we did the Winter Music Conference every year. Wow. So that was kind of this big, for people who don't know, it's just a huge music festival uh, in Miami every year. And it's where, you know, the big names come from all over the world. It's, it's an industry conference, essentially, is what it is. Yeah. But then obviously we throw these big parties. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. So I was a drum and bass DJ. So it was like not exactly on the main stage, but during that time in kind of the early 2000s, it was uh, it was a hell of a lot of fun. So that, that sounds awesome. Yeah, I mostly made like house music. Um, yeah. So. so you'd be on the main stage. Yeah. <laughs> But, but like you, then I said, all right, you know what? Music was my first love, but I uh, went to school for computer engineering and, and obviously was the more practical career to, to chase. Yeah, so for sure. Are, you know? <laughs> but it's good, right? Because it gives us, you know, well-rounded experience and, and culture and all that. Um, so so you, you, you jumped in with a, with, a, with a buddy of yours uh, and started creating Heap. So tell me about that journey. Yeah, for sure. So um, we started Heap towards the beginning of 2013, end of 2012, that kind of time frame. Um, and so... The idea behind Heap was, uh, so uh, Heap is basically an analytics tool that allows you to sort of track user behavior on a website or your mobile app and sort of figure out, you know, how are people converting, how they're flowing through your website, all that kind of stuff. Mostly selling to product teams, occasionally some marketing teams. Uh, there's a lot of other products that sort of solve the same problem, uh, Mixpanel, Amplitude, a bunch of others. But the key sort of thing that Heap did a little bit differently was we, we allow you to sort of basically track user behavior automatically without having to explicitly write the code or instrument the data that you care about. And so, okay. you know, let's say you have a complicated website or a complicated app, you know, you can install a heap and then within 20, 30 minutes already start getting useful data that you can uh, do things with. Whereas with a lot of the 
Uh, other vendors, you have to do a lot of engineering work and a lot of setup costs to get uh, up and running. And so the time to value is a lot faster and also the maintenance cost over time is a lot lower. Uh, and so that was the sort of initial insight. Uh, and so Mateen, my co-founder, he came up with the idea. He used to be a product manager at Facebook. And then during his time at Facebook, Facebook has an internal analytics platform that's really similar to the kind of mainstream SaaS vendors, Mixpanel, Amplitude, that kind of stuff, where it's basically an event-based analytics system where you can sort of explicitly track, okay, here's the things in my app that I want to uh, see what's going on. But, yeah. you know, especially with mobile release cycles, Mateen found himself at Facebook waiting weeks to get data back on simple questions. And so the idea about Heap was to basically just eliminate that bottleneck. And so he was kind of working on that idea for a little bit. Um, he was actually working with someone else, but just kind of as a side project a little bit. And then uh, ended up not working with that person and was kind of working on it solo for a little bit, but he had been hacking on for a few months, basically, in some form or another. Uh, and then he kind of pitched me on the idea and showed me a little prototype of what he built. And I was like, that's really cool. You know, I hadn't had as much like firsthand experience with that exact same problem that he had, but I built side projects in the past and used Mixpanel for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I even did an internship back when I was co- in college where I ended up implementing Omniture, which is Adobe's analytics suite for for a company. And so I had sort of seen firsthand, like, hey, this is actually pretty labor intensive and, and pretty high maintenance, the, the kind of yeah. cost of setting up analytics and maintaining it over time. And so Mateen, but the idea, I'm like, that sounds pretty useful. And so we started working on that in 2013. We kind of had a prototype out that people could use, uh, you know, maybe Feb or March of 2013. And uh, we did Y Combinator. And so uh, a lot of the other companies in our YC batch were some of our first customers. And so we ended up saying, hey, you know, you probably need analytics instead of using Google or Mixpanel or whatever, you should just try using Keep. Uh, and so we got a lot of early feedback and, and usage that way, ended up launching the products, got a lot of traction, um, not overnight necessarily, but a lot of interest in the concept for a while. And after iterating for another year or so, really found product work of it maybe sometime in 2014 and then um, kind of grew from there. Yeah, so so to kind of detour a little bit and talk about product analytics um, as a whole. So I spent about a decade in the analytics space, and uh, this has been, I know firsthand how challenging it is to really answer the business questions is kind of the point of, of analytics. Yeah. Someone, you know, a C-level, a founder or whatever has some question that's, you know, yeah, how engaging is my product? Like, how long are people sticking around? Are people using these new features, et cetera, et cetera? And to translate that question and actually get actual numbers uh, is a is a is a, a heavy lift. I've done it from you know building it absolutely from scratch. Um, I've used Mixpanel and Amplitude and Heap, uh, among other kind of you know whatever. Even like the the full stories and the hot jars and the kind of funnel analytics type of tools. And it's different on web. It's different on mobile. It's different on iOS versus Android. It's really really challenging. But at the same time, it's incredibly valuable because as a you know, this is your navigation, right? And this yep. is your validation that what you're building is actually working. So actually kind of a question that I have for you that we can discuss is, you know, if there are startup founders that are, um, you know, they've launched their product, they're getting traction, and they're trying to implement something to 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 get this insight, what is the right, the right balance or the right stage or the right amount of investment um, that they need to make to get that clarity? Yeah, honestly, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer. I think it's yeah. really dependent on the company, the type of products, the sort of like go-to-market model and all that kind of stuff. I, mm-hmm. I mean, like, take a couple of stream examples. If you're selling pure enterprise software where it's a six-figure or seven-figure price point on average and you're doing like highly consultative um, sales, you have a, a, a sort of big customer success process. Honestly, I don't think the analytics are all that important when you're small. Mm-hmm. You probably have five customers, 10 customers, <laughs> millions of ARR. Uh, and so you kind of know them back and forth. You you probably spent a lot of time with them. You probably know what's going on on a very high qualitative level. I think it's still worth having something like a heap or a full story or whatever in your product to get sort of that additional layer of insight to make sure things aren't breaking, to make sure you're monitoring all the flows and, and you're not shipping regressions and that causes you to convert the tank. But for the most part, you kind of know what's going on. If something, if you do ship a regression that causes some flow to really get broken, so I don't email you about it. On the, on the flip side, if you're doing something that's more SMB or consumer, and your path to getting to a million in revenue means having thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of users. All of a sudden, now you have like real insight you can draw from analytics. Like you have mm-hmm. real, you have enough statistical power to find interesting things, and you're not going to find those things purely by having conversations with users. I mean, yeah. you should still have those conversations with users. I find that there's no substitute for the qualitative, but I think you should probably have like some mildly robust analytics from more or less day one. I'm not saying like pause your launch or whatever, just to get some analytics in place, but spend a few hours instrumenting the five top, you know, what do you think of as key actions in your website before you launch the thing? 
uh, or your app before you launch it, uh, and you know, put something like Heap in place or Full Story or Amplitude or Mix Panel. It, honestly, I'm obviously very biased for a seat, but if you <laughs> enter all that much, which one? Pick one, implement it, try five to ten things that you care about on day one, and like, you know, monitor them. And then as you, yeah. I, as, as I think, what people do incorrectly, sometimes they over-engineer it a little bit. Like yeah. if you're just launching a product, if you have five customers, ten customers. You really don't know what's important and what's not important. Just get something in place, make a best guess, and just be prepared to iterate. That's one of the value props of Heap, really, which is like, we're going to auto-track everything. So because you don't know what's going to be important in advance, um, you can have the confidence the data is there at the end of the day to sort of answer whatever question that comes up later. But yeah, I think that's my general thought in the early days. I think like having a much more deliberate, concerted analytic strategy, I think that starts to become a lot more important when you're past, let's call it a million or two in revenue. Mm -hmm. I think at that point... Almost any business has enough data to do something interesting with. And also you have, you know, a lot of the early product decision making, I think, of these companies is like, you know, if I think about my time at, at Airplane or my time at Heap, like Heap came out of my co-founder's pain point. Airplane comes out of a personal pain one that I am my co-founder had here. In some sense, a lot of the early product, product decisions are like, well, I know we need this because I would have used it, right? It's not the perfect <laughs> decision making heuristic, but it, it gets you pretty far. But at some point that that doesn't last forever. I think once you're a six yeah, months yeah. or a year and you maybe kind of solve that initial problem that you thought you would solve. And then I have to think about how does this generalize? you know, what are the problems people are solving that aren't exactly what I anticipated. And mm -hmm. then like, I think the analytics strategy becomes a lot longer. Yeah. So in, in my experience, one as a, as a product coach and consultant is we want to be able to map the user journey to some kind of data. So you call it, you could call the user journey a funnel, if you will. Yeah. And at every stage in that funnel, you want to understand qualitatively and quantitatively, how are people experiencing the product at this stage and how many of them are moving on to the next stage, why or why not? Right. And so yeah, even if it's just sort of one KPI through yeah. each of sort of the major, major stages of the journey, that's obviously a good place to start. But then as you get to some level of growth, um, it, you know, you get further and further away from, you know, from the individual experiences. And that's where obviously the the statistics come in. Yeah. But one of the biggest challenges at, at that stage or at any stage really is is the cost. You know, these tools are not cheap. It's certainly not cheap to build it. But even the tools that are out of the box, um, they charge a pretty hefty price tag. So what what do you think is, um, are, you know, are there platforms that you think we would recommend more for early stage founders or is there a way to, you know, to get kind of the essence of what you need without spending too much? Yeah, it's a good question. They are they are expensive. Uh, I mean, even Heap raises prices a lot over time. I think almost yeah. all these tools, Mixpanel, Amplitude, Heap, probably some of the others have, have free tiers that you can take advantage of. I, I think you do tend to outgrow them pretty quickly. The other thing is I think most of them have like startup programs as well. So if you're like, hey, mm -hmm. we have less X stars in funding and Y employees, I think they'll you have it for, a, for free for a, a year or six months or something. So I'll definitely check those things out. I mean, at Airplane, not product analysts, but at Airplane, we definitely have, uh, we're worse sure of in the process of releasing a startup program to kind of mitigate that concern. But even to be fair, after those credits expire, at some point it does become yeah, a big really. price tag. I, I think like it's useful to think of these things in terms of, Every company is different. You know, if you're if you're razor, razor than margins, your bootstrap business, maybe you, you just can't afford one of these tools and you look for a lower cost alternative. I know there's tools out there like PostHog, which allow, which are open source and I self-host them. So those might be worth looking into. But I think if you are capitalized enough where you're like, we can afford these tools, but they just feel expensive. Often I think, honestly, whichever one of these analytics tools you pick, if you actually put the effort into implementing them properly and like using them properly, the mm -hmm. ROI should be far, far higher than whatever yeah. the price tag was on the tool and whatever amount of like, you know, time and money you invested into getting it stood up, you should be seeing material business impact from it. Um, right. You should be able to, you know, probably once a month, you should be seeing something in there, which is like, oh, wow, I didn't realize this part of our product is so confusing and people drop off there. I didn't realize, you know, right. our sign-up flow is totally broken in this, you know, locale. I didn't realize, um, hey, this one app campaign we're running is driving signups, but they're actually all, um, you know, low quality or something like that. Yep. Like yep. all those things, you should be, Gaining those kinds of insights once every one to two months, and at least um, once you're at a certain level of scale, and like the the revenue and cost impact of those should dwarf what you're paying for. <laughs> and they know it. I guess that's why they charge so much, right? Yeah. They know the value. Well, you can prove those things. Yeah. The reason, like the retention rates are pretty high on these tools. Everyone has one, even if they switch from one vendor to another. Very rarely does someone decide we're going to just go without. I I I think like you know start on one of the free plans, start on one of the startup tiers, something like that. But you should see that the value is there. And then, you know, when, when it comes time to pay, you might might hurt a little bit, but it, it, it <laughs> Yeah. So obviously one is there's the cost, you know, you're avoiding the cost of building the wrong thing. You're build you're avoiding the cost of overlooking some really important uh signal that you might that you that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. 
But then also I really like to look to use it as a way to validate the decision-making process. So you kind of, you mentioned, you know, founders have this intuition or this insight of like, yeah, I would use it. And so, you know, of course we need this thing, but yeah. we're often wrong about that. Um, yeah. And it, it, it might only get you so far, but there's always going to be a point at which as a founder, you just become too distant from your customers or they become too diverse that that intuition starts to fail you. And so I like to implement these. So even in like a roadmap, where yeah. we're looking at what features are we trying to implement, say, well, how are we going to measure this? And then after we launch that feature, we go back and measure it and then say, well, why were we, why were we wrong about this? What happened? What, why, why was our decision-making process off? And usually it's because we didn't validate enough, right? Yeah. Or we didn't iterate, we didn't prototype, we didn't go through the process. We, we relied on our own intuition, our own opinions. Yeah. That's like nine times out of 10, uh, the issue. Sometimes yeah. it's, well, we were too narrow sighted or we went after too narrow of a persona when we, when we studied this, but that's kind of that, that, that moment of maturity where if I come in and I work with a, with a company to implement, you know, these kinds of analytics, it's like, oh yeah, actually let's look at the things that you thought were going to be super great yeah. and then see how those actually scored. And then let's look at the things that came out of engaging with customers or doing interviews or usability testing or whatever. And those are usually the ones that, that perform the best. For sure. Some kind of obvious reasons, but you know, it's hard when you're, when you're in the midst of it to see it that yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. it, it is easier said than done to, yeah. from the outside. And there's always this sort of urgency to do things and kind of cut corners when it comes to validation and, and things like that. But yeah. definitely. Yeah. And, and obviously the, you know, you, you make this investment in some of these platforms and there's a heavy lift up front, but once you're there, now yeah. that speed to insight is much, much faster. It's a lot right. easier. I asked this business question. Okay. Well, we've already got this, this platform implemented. We can just tool up a new insight or tool up a new, uh, you know, event or what have you and get that answer much faster. So yeah, it just takes a, maybe a bit of a leap of faith and, and obviously a, a decent investment, but once you're there, it, it definitely pays off. Yeah. Hey everyone, Eric here. So every startup founder on earth is searching for the elusive product market fit. It's the thing that unlocks growth and scale and the thing that separates the successes from the failures. But if I asked you what it meant, could you define it? Could you point at it and measure it? Could you break product market fit down into its essential components and have a systematic way to improve them? to unlock product market fit and get to scale? Probably not. So that's why I created a new tool called the Product Market Fit Scorecard, the ultimate guide to unlocking scale. It's a free and simple assessment that you can use with your team to break down product market fit into its 10 key factors, identify where your weak points are, and give you clear and concise recommendations to improve. So just go to pmfscorecard.com and download it now. So, okay. So, so moving on from, from heap, um, you know, you left that company and you pretty much right away, uh, founded a new company. So tell me about that. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I, we started heap in 2013. Uh, I was there for about seven and a half years until midway through 2020. And so my role at heap changed a lot over time. Uh, I spent the first couple of years writing code and building out the product. Once we got past, you know, maybe half a million in ARR or so, um, I actually shifted my responsibilities over to the go-to-work side. So I ended mm -hmm. up, we had our sales team, marketing, customer success, solutions engineering, all that kind of stuff. And so I spent most of my time to keep actually doing more of the go-to-market side of things. And so I uh, helped grow the company to about 200 people uh, before leaving in 2020. Their company's roughly doubled since I left, so it's still doing really well. But uh, I decided to, to move on at that point. We talked to my background as a musician, then I started keep. You know, once we reached a revenue scale of 10, 15, 20 million ARR, and those, yeah. those numbers kept getting bigger and bigger, I kind of realized, <laughs> you know, my forte is not running a multi-hundred person go-to-market organization at the scale. I think I thrive best in the early days when it was sort of creative product decisions and and, and figuring things out rather rather than sort of scaling a thing that works. And so mm -hmm. uh, around 2019, we, we decided to hire a COO. So we brought in a COO uh, named Ken, who ended up taking over my role. And really mm -hmm. within probably 60 days and starting that the rat level of operational rigor uh, and the predictability with which we hit our goals and things like that just was like kind of night and day. He, he did a great yeah. job. And so at that point I was like, you know, Ken does most of what I used to do. 
the additional amount of value I'm going to add is not that high to the company. I still stuck yep. around for another year after that, but decided to leave finally in, in summer of 2020. So I jumped, I jumped in pretty much right after you left then. So I know uh, Ken well, and, and I yeah. helped them with that doubling factor. So getting through scale, I think we, oh, wow. uh, I think it was like end of 2020 that I, that I worked for them and I worked with them for about a year, year and a half or so. And, uh, I remember there was, you know, one quarter where we hired, I think it was like 150 engineers or something like it was just bonkers. And we had to start from scratch basically in the, the, um, you know, the, the systematic process of hiring engineers at that level of scale. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was a lot of fun, you know, yeah. but, but you're absolutely right. There was definitely this level of operational rigor that needed to, that had to be implemented yeah. because the company was just going, you know, going, um, stratospheric or whatever, <laughs> astronomic. Uh, and it was, it was tough, right? Cause things were starting to break apart in all these different ways. For sure. Um, you know, I was focusing on, on the engineering organization, but, uh, it was, yeah, I mean, you know, these are growing pains, right? And they were new growing pains that they hadn't dealt with before is, okay, first it's getting the product market fit, it's delivery, it's getting to a certain amount of scale. And then, holy crap, things are going, you know, completely vertical. Um, yeah. And now all of a sudden it's how do we keep things together and also build it so that it can continue to scale For sure. uh, even at, at multiples beyond that. So yeah, that was a, that was a really fun experience. Yeah, this is exciting. Yeah, I didn't get to see quite that level of sort of uh, scale, but yeah, I left right before it. <laughs> well, you kept you kept your you kept your hair and all, so that's good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I I got lucky in a way. Yeah, yeah Ken, Ken did a great job uh, to cover the revenue organization, and eventually he, um, as you probably know, uh, became the CEO of the company as well. My co-founder, Matine, also left um, about a year after I had left at Keep. So Ken is not a CEO, doing a great job over there, from from what I understand. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I decided to sort of move on and start something new. And so I left Heap in July of 2020 uh, was when my last day was. And then I ended up starting Airplane in December of 2020. So not a big gap. And also a lot of the time in between officially starting the company and, and officially leaving Heap was actually doing kind of that initial research and validation for the NDX. Uh, yeah. And so when I left uh, Heap, I definitely wasn't intending to start something again so soon, but kind of had an idea that I was excited about and... Uh, we went through that kind of validation process. It turns out there was a lot of interest in what we were working on and so decided to dive in. So um, I, I left Heap in, 20, in summer 2020, started working with a friend of mine named Josh, uh, who is now a co-founder at Airplane. Um, but Josh and I had known each other for a while. Josh had a sort of parallel journey that I did. He was CTO at a company called Benchling, um, which also was started around 2012, 2013. He also saw them get to a few other people and, and had count, um, helped scale their engineering organization over many years. Uh, and then ended up leaving Benchling after seven years or so in the, in the role uh, in 2020 as well. And so Josh and I started kind of like riffing on ideas and things like that. And the thing that both Josh and I had observed at Benchling and Heap respectively was that kind of one of these persistent pain points that was always uh, there within both companies was, was just the lack of good internal tooling. And so what I mean by internal tools is all that software that needs to exist at any SaaS company that is not customer facing. And so you know, if you're Heap, there would be constant issues where, you know, we're working with an enterprise customer and need their trial to be extended. So then someone on the sales team has to be able to click a button and extend their trial. Or, you know, we're working with a customer and they accidentally implement the API incorrectly. They've sent a bunch of data they didn't mean to. Someone on our team has to go in and sort of clean it up with scripts to sort of make that work better. Or, you know, people have a bunch of GDPR requests that they use to fulfill the leaks of customer data. They send those to us. Someone on our team has to go and run some scripts to make sure that data gets scrubbed in the proper ways. And so these kinds of like operations would sort of pile up over time. And we had, you know, probably 70, 80 scripts that would get executed on, on sort of a, a, a frequent basis. And then also tons of instances where engineers or more or people on the solutions engine team would have to like, you know, go into a database and manipulate some data or, or something like that on behalf of a customer. And so we didn't like really great tooling around all that stuff that would allow, like in an ideal world, someone who's on the sales team, customer success team, or support team would have been able to like solve those problems themselves, uh, which would have cut down the amount of time to solve them, cut down the amount of like back and forth within the company, cut down the latency, all that kind of stuff. Also, it wasn't very safe when you have a bunch of like engineers and access to production resources and able to run scripts. Um, it was, we kind of had to do that by necessity, but ideally we would have been able to lock down access a lot more. And so this is kind of a problem we struggled with. It was also something Josh struggled with over at Benchling. Um, and he even built sort of a, a mini solution to uh, internally there over a couple of quarters that made it a little bit safer to run these kinds of scripts and things like that. And so I was talking to Josh about that. Um, he mentioned that was a pain for them. I mentioned it was a pain for us at Heap. And so we spent a good 
couple of months just interviewing engineers and non-engineers at a ton of companies, at just people in our network, big companies, small companies, everything in between. Um, and just kind of sense that at almost every company, not just SaaS businesses like Heap and Um, this is sort of like a persistent problem. Really any cloud company, which is basically every company these days. So, you know, whether you're building a SaaS app, whether you're building, you know, a banking mobile app, whether you're building, uh, you know, the, the Disney Plus app, like any of these things, Uber, whatever, there's some sort of client that exists uh, that, that your customers interact with. And there's a ton of other software things here written behind the scenes, you know, intro mm-hmm. dashboards, admin panels, cron jobs, scripts, all this kind of stuff that sort of honestly keeps a company held together that is yeah. often not visible to the outside world. Uh, and so uh, our thought was like, you know, a lot of the problems, a lot of the reasons it's hard to build this kind of software are sort of the same at every company. You know, you've got to use script that does some business specific piece of logic in order to turn that into a robust enterprise grade internal tool. You have to make sure there's a good UI in front of it. You have to make sure it's permissioned, only the right people have access to it. You have to make sure there's some sort of audit log every time it's run. You have to make sure there's like a notification system and letting people know when things are running and things like that. You have to make sure that there's like um, a way to sort of like handle the kind of infrastructure side. If you run some operations are running in the right context, mm-hmm. is it going to take up too many resources, all that sort of thing. And so that's a that's the reason like engineers just write a quick script and don't bother any of that stuff because that stuff yeah. is consuming and annoying. But it's also the same. <laughs> so our thought is, can we give like you a set of building blocks that lets you sort of automate all that boilerplate, the stuff that's largely the same at most companies. It just configure it with a couple of clicks uh, so that you as an engineer can handle just the quick backend logic of that operation and we'll handle the rest. And so that was kind of the idea behind your plan. We pitched it to some folks, put together some slides and like built a really quick prototype and people were like, yeah, that's pretty nifty. I think I would use this if you built it. Yeah, you're, you're uncovering some trauma for me for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, as a CTO myself, I, I, I probably spent half my time building these internal tools, half my time building the product, and then half my time building and managing the team, which obviously is more than, than, <laughs> than hundred percent. Yeah. But you know, these, yeah, the exactly type of use cases would come up often, whether it's, they need to modify some customer data, they need to, you know, they just need to get their hands in the, in the system for some reason. And yeah. so I would create these absolute garbage like PHP web apps and hand it to them, be like, just here, stop asking me to do it. Yeah. And of course, yeah, like they wouldn't be great. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have any kind of error handling or audit logging or anything. And yeah. you know, they'd come back and they'd want them to be enhanced. And I'm like, I wrote this in 30 minutes. I was probably drunk. Like, don't ask <laughs> me to maintain this thing. Just get away from me. But those kinds of things happen constantly. And you know, early on in, in the startup days, you're doing a lot of this stuff manually, but as you get to growth and scale, these things become much more important. And and you mentioned around safety and security, like yeah. it's a it becomes a lot easier to screw up data, especially, okay, I'm building a tool. Like I said, I built some tool, spent 30 minutes on it, and now the database has changed. And I'm I don't even remember that that tool even exists. That's not an officially supported tool, but there's somebody yeah. in some department whose job depends on that thing with no documentation or anything. And all of a sudden it breaks and either now their job is now they're stuck in their job or worse. They're actually now damaging or, 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 you know, ruining or deleting data. So this is definitely a big problem. So obviously I, I'm sure every CTO that, that that's watching or listening out there is, is feeling the same pain. If you're not, if you're a founder, know that your CTO and your team is going through this pain. So, you know, pay attention. <laughs> this is important. So anyway, so yeah, so, so so where do you go from here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head in terms of describing the problem. I've spoken to so many people who kind of describe it the same way. They've hacked together these random, uh, you know, uh, these days it's less PHP and more, you know, Django, my, like Django admin and, and, yeah. and these kinds of like off-the-shelf tools to kind of get at some of these problems, but then no safety controls, no permissionings. People still make mistakes, don't input validations. People accidentally delete all the data in the database. <laughs> Backups. Like that kind of stuff happens at companies all the time. And so that's sort of the status quo at, at many, many organizations. Um, and so we decided that we could build a SaaS around it essentially. And so we started working on airplane time officially in 2020, uh, December, 2020. That's when we probably started, wrote the first lines of code and started building a prototype. Um, and yeah, I mean, the first version of airplane was really, really simple. Basically the way it worked is you'd write a script in let's say Python or JavaScript or something like that. Um, and that script could be whatever you wanted. It wasn't something airplane specific. You could sort of say, okay, the script goes into the database and deletes a, a user based on a user ID parameter that you mm-hmm. added to the, that, that you bet's one of the parameters that the script takes in. Uh, and then, so that was what you would write. Um, and then you would deploy that to airplane 
And then within the Airplane UI, you basically configure a bunch of data, like metadata about the, how that script should run. So you'd say, here's the parameters it takes in, here's the input validation rules, here's who on my team has access to it, you know, what identity groups and whatnot have access to it. Um, here's uh, who, who should get notified when this thing is run uh, and, and sort of things like that. Uh, so it was really, really simple concept. Uh, and we started, we, we probably had like an early version out by like maybe February or March of 2021. And then we had like, I think literally one company that was sort of using it in in yeah. kind of a sort of beta state. We were seeing a lot of their feedback and iterating a lot. Um, and then by April or May, we got a couple other early beta customers on board as well. Um, small companies, you know, 20 to 50 person startups, that kind of thing. But friends of ours who, who were willing to take a shot and, and uh, on, on a tool. But despite them being kind of friendly, um, they weren't just doing us a favor. It, we kind of saw that like it would get in here with like one or two scripts and then people would start adding more stuff to it, but getting yeah. more users onto the platform, all that kind of stuff. And then so by like probably June of 2021, we had like probably three companies where there was like a good 10, 15 people in the organization logging into it every day and running right. things off the platform. They were adding more and more scripts to it over time. Uh, and we thought, okay, there's there's something valuable here in terms of the value we're creating for these companies. Uh, and so we decided to just launch the product. I think, uh, you know, a lot of SaaS companies, a lot of SaaS startups like stay in stealth for a long time and mm-hmm. developer validation. But uh, my, my viewpoint is we did the same thing with Heap, which was we just, once there's even a little bit of product market fit, just like launch the damn thing and, and mm-hmm. get it up people's hands as fast as possible. So that's what we did. July 2021, we ended up launching the product um, and we got um, a fair amount of interest pretty quickly. That interest didn't necessarily mean we had like nailed it um, right away. There was mm-hmm. a lot of um, ways in which people resonated with the core concept, but had a lot of um, feature requests and things, reasons for which it didn't fully solve the problem. So it was probably good, you know, another good sort of six to 12 months of iteration to really get to that repeatable um, scalable kind of product market fit, but yeah. that's kind of the quick sort of early story of how we, um, you know, got out the gate. Yeah. So, so you launched it. Now you were getting paid customers. Yeah. They were they were giving you a lot of feedback. So, how did you kind of manage that feedback to understand? Like, how how did you hone in on on that scalable product market fit? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, yeah, we basically we've been forced that there's been a lot of interest from more or less day one of launching the product. That doesn't mean there's been a lot of customers from day one, but um, we had, you know, those few beta customers we had, we did like a launch on, you know, Pattern News, Puppet Hunt, these kind of community, communities where startups hang out. Uh, and we also just pitched to a lot of our friends and people in our network. A lot of people we've done that initial sort of validation conversations with, we're like, hey, you said you thought that was interesting. Maybe you can use it. Uh, and so we got a lot of our initial customers that way. Um, and really we just spent a lot of time with them and listened to them. Uh, I think there's, uh, we did use analytics. You can see that the data, but I think a lot of the things, um, that really took us from like cool early product to like real valuable product market fit that's repeatable and scalable um, end up being things that are actually kind of hard to see in analytics because they have to end up being like ways to expand the platform um, to sort of offer a lot more functionality before I think it really um, felt like it it sort of like uh, uh, worked. And so what I mean by that specifically, as I mentioned, the initial version of Airplane, you can deploy a script, it'll turn it into sort of like a web app that someone can execute on your team which is a good fit for some internal operations, it's very much not a good fit for many others. And so uh, what what typically happens is, you know, let's say you're a company like you know, the one you you, you previously led, um, and you have uh, a bunch of people coming to you saying like, I need this tool to do this, I need a tool to do that. Uh, if some of those fit into Airplane, but some of them don't, it's kind of hard to adopt Airplane for it. Because you're like, well, I can have to tell them to go to Airplane for some of these things, and then tell them to go to this different you know, system of hack together for another set of things and maybe a third system for another set of things. And so while some companies were happy with that sort of equilibrium, uh, most companies were more like, hey, unless you're able to do a, a little bit more, we're not going to be able to use a product. And so the script paradigm is really good for something that's kind of compute heavy or write heavy, something that's sort of a long running task or something like that. It's not actually that great for something that's more read heavy. If you want to visualize data or into a lookup, if you're like, hey, I just have to like view data about a customer, type in their name, do a search, find all the matching customers, click on the one that matches, see some data about them. It's actually kind of hard to model as a script. Um, And so we ended up basically having to add more affordances for building more complicated UIs in the product. Uh, And then we also had to add some affordances around like orchestration. So people were like, hey, I have a five-step process here. I I can model that as five different scripts or something like that in an airplane, but then I'll have to write a doc to tell my team how to like execute these things one after the other. Uh, Really, you should have some sort of form of orchestration. So we ended up building that as well. Basically the ability to trigger things from other things and have sort of that kind of logic uh, around stuff. Uh, and so once we kind of released uh, some basic features around UI building and orchestration, all of a sudden people were like, hey, actually for 90 to 100% of everything I want to build from an control pooling perspective, 
um, airplane can actually cover it. Um, and so if we adopt this platform, you know, and sort of pay that kind of learning curve and cost and all that kind of stuff, it's going to actually be really worth it. We can tr trust this as a, as a sort of end-to-end -end system. Uh, and so since, since we've kind of like broadened the platform to include those things, we've then started getting repeatable sort of enterprise revenue and things like that. Definitely. So there's two, two things that you, that you mentioned that, that called out to me around product market fit. One is you knew your customers, right? You said they were your friends and colleagues and so on. So one of the biggest things when I'm, I'm working with, with founders around identifying their core pers personas or their core market is if it's not you and your community, it has to be a community that you have access to. Yeah. Right. So a lot of founders, unfortunately, will cr try to create something for a market that they that they aren't a part of or they're an outsider or they just truly don't understand. And so there's a lot of work that has to get done into not only creating empathy and understanding, but then also even getting access to them so that they would even talk to you and give you their feedback yeah. at any stage, whether it's early on with the idea or on through as you're as you're building your product. Because, yeah, somebody needs to be able to, to trust you enough to even give you their time. Um, so I always, I, in fact, some of the founders I've worked with, I've actually coached them on a detour to say, you're not ready to build this platform that you want to build because you're an outsider. Yeah. Go start an agency and serve that community, become an insider, and then start marketing those or shopping those those ideas around. And I actually have a client right now that uh, that's probably listening who took a couple of years that went down this detour, built this thriving agency, and now his customers are actually investing in his platform. And now he's come back to me to help him build the SaaS platform. So yeah. access and becoming an insider is is absolutely key, especially at the early stages. For sure. You you didn't talk about your product in terms of features. You talked about it in terms of goals or use cases, right? Things that the customers want to accomplish. Yeah. And I think too many founders focus on features or, or things, these sort of tangible widgets that I can put a name on and brand it and sell it and not so much about, well, what is the customer actually trying to do? So yeah. we built this script engine. Yeah, that's great. That fits a certain use case, but they have this broader context that they're trying to accomplish that this kind of sort of jams into, but not really super well. So they've got yeah. to duct tape these scripts together. Okay, let's actually create this cohesive solution. Um, and doing that in all these different ways, I think is what, what ultimately had everything kind of hone in and, and resonate. So thinking sure. about your customer in terms of what are the goals they want to accomplish? What are the use cases or scenarios that that drive them towards those goals? And yep. then, all right, there's different things we can build that we can tie together and, and, and create that solution. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, very few people said, I want you to build a UI builder in the airplane. Right. And yeah. It's very rare that you heard that specific sentence. Occasionally, someone would try to pitch you on that idea or something. But for the most part, people say like, Airplane doesn't quite solve all my needs. You dig in, like, what does that mean? You know, and yeah. they and they, they kind of articulate it in probably a much less concise way than I, the one way I expressed it to you. Uh, and yeah. it obviously takes you sometimes six months or twelve months to really internalize it inside yourself because not everyone yeah. packages it up in the exact way that you sort of interpret it. You know, people weren't necessarily saying exactly that, but you spend enough time with your customers, you really get to know those use cases super deeply, um, right. and you will at some point kind of internalize. Okay, this is what's really going on. And this <laughs> is what's really missing our product. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a bit of a, you, you, you can't substitute for, you know, knowing your customers really deeply. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, so you've, 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 you've gotten to that product market fit. Now, where are you now in terms of, of scale? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, I'm not gonna share exact revenue num uh, numbers, but sure. sub 10 million in, in ARR, uh, yeah. of single digit millions, that kind of range. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the team is 20. It's it's 19 people today. We have few people joining in, in a week, so it'll be actually 23 people very soon. Um, and so, uh, still pretty small team, um, mostly engineering. Uh, we are starting to both the go market side out of our sort of seeing that repeatable product market fit and, and things mm -hmm. like that. So, um, what are some of the the growing pains that you're dealing with now? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a there there's a few. I say uh, I'd say like um, I mean, number one is just like uh, you know when you sort of flip from not having product market to having product market fit, all of a sudden like you know, there's, there's more, there's so much to do. So yeah. like the support volume goes through the roof, the, the number of customer meetings that are happening on a week to week basis kind of goes to the roof and it, it feels like it all sort of happens at once. So we're actually scrambling a little bit to catch up to sort of the, the growth and the stage the company's at. So I mentioned there's four new people starting in the next couple of weeks. That's kind of, that hiring is there to sort of um, keep up with the kind of growth that is sort of naturally happening. Um, and so I'd say that's the, that's the biggest one is just being a little bit behind on a couple of hires uh, relative to what the company needs. 
I'd say the other growing pains are, you know, another sort of symptom of kind of, of product market fit and having a lot of customers and a growing number of customers is the set of kind of requests explodes uh, very quickly. So then instead of things people need and the, um, the diversity of the customer base and all that kind of stuff uh, grows really, really quickly. And so yeah. there is like, I think, real decision-making to be done around like, do we double down on what's working for SME mid-market customers? Do we sort of force directions that are affecting our enterprise customers, even though we have a lot fewer of those? Like there's these kinds of things that that there's a little bit of like sequencing questions you have to put, uh, you have right. to ask and, and figure strategy out. strategy becomes more complex. For sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way I like to describe uh, product market fit, it's like the eye of a hurricane. So yeah. as you're driving towards product market fit, there's so much where you're pushing this boulder up the hill, and everything is on kind of supply side, and and then things start to click, and it gets a little bit easier, and it's almost like you start floating, right? Yeah. Things become effortless. Sales start coming in. You don't have to work as hard to you know to you're not constantly changing things because it's starting to dial in. Okay, great. Now you've got this moment of almost just sort of floating if you will yeah. and then scale starts to take over now there's a whole different set of challenges and all this chaos and things are getting ripped apart at the seams uh, and honestly I, I personally believe that the scale stage is much more chaotic and much more hectic even than pre-product market fit Definitely. even though you're you're scrappy and you're you're you know you're there's a lot of ways that things can fail in, in the early stages you're forced to be very focused on a few number of things but then at the scale stage everything just gets multiplied um, so yeah, so those are definitely some, some familiar, uh, challenges. So how are you, how are you kind of tackling that at this stage? How are you getting after that kind of repeatability, uh, and, and setting yourself up for, for scale? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit of hiring on the sales side and things like that that we need to do and, and have done. We have a few people joining. Um, but yeah, I think the other, the other thing I think we, um, at, at Heap, I think we were very reactive, you know, as mm -hmm. like we came on fire problems, we would sort of hire people or do whatever was needed to kind of fix that problem. Uh, and that worked well enough, but it also meant you were kind of perpetually feeling behind and mm -hmm. some of that you know, avoided and and you also don't want to hire too much out of need and things like that. But I think one thing we've done really well at Airplane, which we never really did early days at Heap is we've invested very heavily into content early on, which mm -hmm. is I think a very sort of like scalable growth strategy. And so you sort of see that where kind of our SEO traffic and all that kind of stuff has just been steadily ticking up for the mm -hmm. last year and a half. Um, and so as a product market fit is set on the product side, the sort of demand is already kind of there to, to sort of fulfill it. And so the ability to hit kind of higher and higher um, revenue targets and stuff like that, while that's not guaranteed by any means, I think we have like, there's less amount of like pushing a boulder up the hill that we're going to need to do because we've sort of laid the foundation out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So um, how do you think your role is changing now as a, as a leader? Um, it's still, I mean, it's still not changing that much. I mean, I still spend most of my time talking to customers uh, and, and thinking about product. And so I, I do think some founders give that up a little bit too quickly where they like move away from the customer conversations. So, okay, I just now hire people to sort of do it. Uh, and, and you do to some extent, but um, some things can't be substituted. I think the founder just has to have like a strong connection to customers at any scale. And you see yeah. this in the best SaaS leaders. You take someone like, you know, Mark Benioff at Salesforce. He still gets sun jets and visits customers in person and things like that. Yep. And so that part, I, I is not changing it. I don't think will ever change. And still, the majority of the time I spend is sort of customer facing. Um, that aside, I think a little bit more time has been spent on hiring and things like that. We've been a little bit more deliberate about like headcount planning and doing things like that. Yeah, I always say that 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 is the the number one thing that does that you should do that doesn't scale yeah. is talk to customers. I yeah. don't care if you're an early stage startup or the CEO of a Fortune one company. Yeah, um, if you're not. If you don't have personal relationships with your customers and you aren't engaging with them regularly, you're just out of touch. Everything yeah. becomes a telephone game, uh, and you can't lead that way if you're out of touch with your customers. So, sure. so good for you. That's definitely gonna gonna lead to a lot of success in the future. So, what are you um, what are you struggling with as a leader at this stage? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, uh, honestly, the prioritization and, and strategy has just become more complex very quickly because yeah. The, Product service area is more complicated. We have more customers. There's more things to do. And so there's like real decisions that need to be made around like, you know, what do we react to in terms of feedback? Well, can we ignore for a little bit? What do we uh, prioritize versus not prioritize? Uh, and so those things are, you know, we have the customer input. We have that sort of tight catch for customers. But there's a little, there's a little bit of like needing to predict the future a little bit about like, you know, what's going to lead to the most growth and stuff like that a year from now, two years from now. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of, those kind of prioritization questions are really hard. Um, and I think we have a lot of them wrong in the sort of middle stages of heap. 
Um, uh, I think best it's a lot better now, but between, you know, five and 20 million of ARR to keep, I think there was a lot of things that we could have done that would have led to a lot more growth later if we had sort of gotten them <laughs> really correct. And so I think there was just some lost cycles there because of yeah. like less than stellar kind of, uh, that kind of product decision-making and strategic decision-making. And so I want to make sure not just sort of hit the same pitfalls this time around. Yeah. Do you have a framework or a scorecard of some kind for prioritizing? Honestly, no. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Like, uh, uh, you know, there are many out there, um, but like I I found it that like every company does things a little bit differently here. I I talk to lots of other founders and get a sense of like how they've grappled with these things and it's sort of different all across the board or some things don't something very personal. I think for heaps so of the stuff that we did wrong was, you know, uh, heap is like a product analytics tool. The vast majority of heaps customers are product managers or VPs of product and product teams, essentially, uh, that realization took five or six years to figure out, uh, uh because analytics is a really general purpose, uh, thing. You, we, you, a lot of people who are using heap are marketing teams, engineers, um, data teams, product teams. Those are probably the four main ones, but, um, mm-hmm. when we reply like four or five million in ARR, we had, there was like a real a bit of an identity crisis of like, Hey, we have all these different constituencies. We can't build a product that serves all of these people really, really well. Uh-huh. So that needs to be sort of to pick a lane and, and figure out what the actual best persona is. And then we just kind of didn't, we, we tried to sort of do, be all things to all people and end up building a product that wasn't really deep enough to anyone in what, any one way. It was too complicated for some set of people and not complicated enough for other sets of people. Uh, and so it was a really long time to figure out what's the actual North Star of the company, what's the right persona. And so I think with with airplane, you know, we don't the problem is not quite that bad. Airplane sells to engineers, so mm-hmm. it is at least one business function within the company. But there is that sort of like SMB versus mid market versus enterprise, very different sets of of, of needs and, and buyers and things like that. There is that sort of user buyer distinction where like what engineering leadership wants from a, t- a tool like airplane, one or an individual engineer wants from the, from the tool. And so I think those things can get complicated and there's like not one right answer honestly to just trust all yeah. these, these things other than you have to pick something you, you can't sort of <laughs> make certain decisions so yeah. i'd say that that's the the maybe the only framework is you got to pick something yeah i you know i get I, I get in this debate a lot i'm i'm still pretty bullish about creating some kind of scorecard for features uh yeah. internally and and i've i have a whole i have so many different models and decks and they change over time, but um, essentially, I like some kind of a weighted sum yeah. where there are different factors that are important to you strategically. Yeah, and it could be a funnel, right? User acquisition, retention, revenue, etc. Like pirate metrics. Uh, it could be affinity to whatever our strategic objectives are, right? Yeah. So this feature aligns with you know at a high level, right? We scored a five in alignment with this strategic goal that we've said, which is like. We're going after enterprise or whatever. Um, and in some cases, it might be, you know, number of customer requests or, you know, how much feedback signal are we getting? So there's a lot of different factors you can take in. And then every quarter, I like to say, well, let's just put our weights. Like, how important are these different things to us as a business? Yeah. And then, you know, it's not to say that it's the end all be all, but it frames the debate and and the the key thing or the key value of some kind of a of a scorecard like this is we want to get away from the soft fuzzy opinions of the loud people in the room, the hippos, the highly paid people's opinions, right? Yeah. Or the loud voices in the room and really just say, well, the way we decide on what to build is based on these factors we've all agreed on. And so when we're having a debate, we say, well, how much do we think this feature is going to impact this goal or or retention or revenue? It just kind of frames the discussion in a in a more logical way. Um, and it just, you know, just comes to better decision making. And it's also something too that you can measure. Because then we can also say, well, how are we going to measure retention? Obviously it's somewhat straightforward, but you know, how do we measure the impact or the success on this big strategic objective? Okay, cool. Measure it, tie it back. And then again, you can say, well, how well are we actually doing at making these decisions? Yeah. Um, so I'm fine with, you know, startups that do use, do something very, very simple. Yeah. Uh, it could even just be like one OKR and like, that's all we care about all the way up to, you know, large companies I've worked with that might have a dozen different factors and they spend weeks and months you know, debating and scoring and rescoring and so on. Uh, obviously there's, there's a point at which it becomes too much. Um, but anyway, so I'm, I'm pretty bullish on that that approach to to prioritization uh, even if the model itself is is pretty simple 
So how do you, how do you react to that kind of intuitively? Yeah, honestly, I like that approach. Uh, I, it's not super complicated and it's probably implicitly what we're doing anyways. Like everything you kind of described, we're not putting weights on things, but we're sort of implicitly putting weights on things to the way you you discuss things. And I think formalizing it and, and adding, like taking your intuitions when you say X is important and Y is less important, turning that into actual numbers, I think does actually help for that discussion a little bit better. Um, I I like that. Yeah. Cool. I'm happy to send you the, I've got the tools and stuff. (laughs) I could send over my old spreadsheets. Uh, awesome. No, great. Well, so, so, um, you know, we're kind of, kind of coming up on the hour here. Um, we'd like to wrap up, but I'd love to, you know, get any kind of final messages or thoughts or, or advice that you'd give to, to other founders that might be following in your footsteps. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say, uh, I mean, there's probably a lot of takeaways, honestly, or maybe <laughs> you like, um, kind of a few big things that I think we did really well at both keeping an airplane and also some mistakes made that, I think someone could sort of avoid. I think as we did really well is we stayed really lean pre-product market fit at both companies. We didn't sort of overhire. That was, I think, honestly, the default in 2013 when we started Keep. You kind of knew not to hire until you really needed to. But um, 2020 and 2021, the fundraising market got a little bit out of whack. There were some really, really big teams there where uh, people built really big companies that didn't have any product market fit. And you've seen some high-profile photos. Yeah. Some, I think there was still this collective idea that you need a lot of people to, to find product market fit and mm-hmm. for a pure sauce software business, I think that's really true. Uh, so I think that's one thing we did well. I think these are you can done better at Heap that hopefully will do a little bit better over, over at Airplay. We are talking about the product prioritization and things like that. I think really just picking the right set of North Star metrics and the right set of North Star customers and I do mm-hmm. customer profile, like that kind of stuff is not easy to get right, but it's, you can't just like kick the can on the road and not actually solve those problems. So you have to have alignment about what it is who are we going after? Who are we not going after? All that kind of stuff. Getting that stuff right early on and then using that as the, the through line on your product prioritization. Mm-hmm. So many problems. Um, doesn't solve all the problems, but it's all. I like that. Clarifying your identity and using that to drive your decisions moving yeah. forward. Yeah. For sure. So I think those are the two things that, you know, there's a lot of little things you have to get right. Um, but like if you get those big things right, a lot of things fall in place. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was really great. It was a fun conversation. So... Thanks for coming on. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me on.